You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. This episode is sponsored by Plant Medicine Law Group, the American boutique law firm serving the psychedelic and cannabis space. PMLG was founded by three women in November 2020. Their mission is to expand equitable and legal access to plant medicine and help companies in the psychedelic and cannabis industries succeed in a complex emerging market. PMLG provides clients with strategic expertise to successfully launch, fund, and grow their businesses. They are committed to humanizing the legal process and empowering you with the information and guidance you need to build the next generation of successful businesses. The PMLG team embraces complexity, encourages innovation, and aligns themselves directly with your vision. I got to know Adriana Kurtzer, one of the PMLG founding partners, during a digital conference. She then invited me to join the Interfaith Working Group Faith and Psychedelics. I'm a huge fan of Adriana's and her team. And if you need more information, please head over to www.plantmedicinelaw.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. Today, my guests are Leoa Rosemann and Antoine Saka, who recently launched their study, Relational Processes in Ayahuasca Groups of Palestinians and Israelis. Which means the two of them had Palestinians and Israelis drinking ayahuasca together and study empathy and mutual understanding after the ceremonies. Leor Rosman is a postdoc at the Center for Psychedelic Research, Imperial College London, where he received his PhD and MRES under the supervision of Dr. Robin Card Harris and Professor David Nutt. His research is focused on a neural and psychological correlates of the psychedelic experience and the therapeutic application of psilocybin for depression. Currently, Leor is investigating the psychosocial potential of psychedelics. Antoine Saka was born in Jerusalem to a Christian family from the city of Bethlehem. He has spent his adult life working towards the dream of peace and justice in the Holy Land. He spent five years at the Holy Land Trust, serving also as director of programs where he experienced community healing approaches that strengthened his interest in nonviolent, compassionate activism. Since then, he's focused on community dynamics and many forms of personal, collective, experienced and inherited trauma that influence conflict resolutions in the Holy Land. 
He believes that healing the pain of the past is a prerequisite for healthy relationships between nations and ultimately peace. Antoine serves as an associate at Leaders Quest, walking and learning among the world leaders in their search for aligning profit with purpose in this rapidly changing world. He was also a youth leader and a member of the One Voice Movement. Antoine graduated from the Arab American University of Jenin with a BA in Public Law. So here they are, the two of them, with a very special topic. Since Leor and Antoine's paper, to quote the study, presents a phenomenological investigation centered on intersubjective and intercultural relational processes, exploring how an intercultural context affects both the group and individual process. So you could also say that Leora and Antoine are looking into the pain of a land, the compassion people could have in the future with the support of ceremonies like ayahuasca. And they also explore the ideas our brains have about deep-rooted conflicts and disagreements. Overall, a super fascinating topic, I think. I heard about Leoris and Antoine's study a while ago, and I was really fascinated by the idea and thrilled to learn more. And so now, here they are, talking to us, and I hope you enjoy the show. Here's Antoine and Leo Rosman. I'm super excited to have you guys on, on the show today. Uh, you're both in Israel. Um, with a lot of sunshine as opposed to Berlin, <laughs> which is very rainy. So Leor and Antoine, great to have you on the show. And of course, I think we only have one topic today, um, and it's called your study, Relational Processes in Ayahuasca Groups of Palestinians and Israelis. I mean, if I heard this the first time, I mean, I think it took me like a week to kind of think what actually, how this could look like if you put these two groups together. So I think it was in this whole psychedelic ecosystem, it was really the most extraordinary thing or study I heard of. So, of course, the first question would be, how did you guys come up with the idea? Yeah, I guess uh, I, for me, the beginning was uh, I'm a neuroscientist in Imperial College and doing like neuroscience research for quite a while and then doing research on therapy for a while. Uh, but on a personal level, I'm an Israeli that lives in London and kind of want to bring some healing back home. And also a lot of my journeys and my personal processes has been in groups. And uh, the group has been playing an important part of my uh, journeys. So I kind of wanted to expand into studying groups, studying dynamics between individuals, studying relational stuff. So this is the title, Relational Processes. Uh, so I had kind of a motivation to do this and a motivation to do work from home. Uh, so these two were joined into this idea of uh, studying groups of Israelis and Palestinians to drink together and maybe creating groups like this in the future uh, with that kind of intention of peace building or liberation uh, and things like this. But obviously, it's also like an idea that's there, out there, you know, we didn't come up with the idea. It's like the idea of let's, you know, turn on people to psychedelics and it will bring peace. It's kind of like an idea that's there, part of the culture, in a way. Yeah, but I mean, it, I still feel like, um, and maybe Antoine, you, you can talk about this, I still feel like 
like in, in terms of the classic depression questions, it's like, oh yeah, of course, there's boom, there's a clinical study. But I feel in, in terms of these kind of questions, it still needs somebody always to give the last kind of push to do this. Yeah, for sure. The way we did jump into studying what exists, because uh, this is not an existing project where you have Palestinians and Israelis coming to drink together with an, with an intention of looking at the dynamics of conflict. It's a space where people have been jumping for personal growth, mm -hmm. uh, for uh, self-healing, and the reality of the conflict makes it uh, present in those spaces. So uh, in that regard, uh, what, what was interesting for me from the beginning as an activist, um, my field is activism, and I've been in joint spaces, what we call joint spaces, that brings Israelis and Palestinians together for the last 15 years of my life. And even in this activism field, we realized that the past has, to a great extent, defined or limited the possibilities. And uh, that past holds a lot of uh, traumatic experiences in it. So coming from the field of activism and trying to understand what has been inhibiting us as two nations to achieve what is possible, uh, brought me to encounter the element of trauma in, in this journey. And... Uh, once you do uh, start learning more and more about the possible ways of how people are dealing with the personal traumas or the collective traumas, then you start noticing communities who have been doing this again for not necessarily with a focus on the conflict, but personal growth, which in a way brought us to encounter in the study the reality that they've, they've had encounters with the conflict on those spaces, but not necessarily held with that intention. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you read the study, there seemed like four physical places where, where you did this. So what was the environment or let's say the, the set and setting where you guys did this? So just to emphasize the study that we did, we started as observational research. So we studied groups that are already happening. We didn't create those okay. groups. Uh, so, and so it's kind of a <clears throat> anthropological or a fieldwork kind of study. Uh, doing a lot of interviews and people who participated in these groups. So Antoine and me, we did a road trip of a month in Israel and Palestine and interviewed many people. And they come from five different groups. Uh, some of the groups are organized by Israelis. There's one group organized by a Palestinian and one uh, by a European. And uh, so that's kind of the context. And it happens all over. So it's like there's no one location. It's like moves between locations. It's usually in nature but sometimes in houses of people as well. Okay, maybe you can lead us a little bit through the setup of the study. So everybody's meeting in a place, they maybe have a conversation first, and then people had to, I mean, to agree to do ayahuasca also, right? So um, was there kind of a kind of screening calls before or conversations? Because, I mean, as we know now, a lot of psychedelic treatments, like even if you go to a simple retreat, you would need like a couple of, rounds with therapists or even psychiatrists now, for example, with field trips. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how the preparation, because it's a very, it's a really very, very emotional topic for for these people who were part of the study, right? Sure. Yeah. So again, this is not our preparation. This is groups that already happen uh, in the underground. And this is um, like, there's a, the context that's called neo-shamanic. So neo-shamanic context is kind of indigenous meets West. 
And a lot of times there are communities that form around it. So it's not just like a one time going to a retreat. It is like uh, drinking with the same group of people that's kind of changing a bit, but drinking on a regular basis, maybe once a month, maybe once a year, depends. Different groups have different frequencies. And uh, screening there sometimes happens. Sometimes it's a bit more loose. It's usually like a friend, bring friends uh, kind of thing. And in many times the facilitators do a conversation before. But a lot of times it's like a friend is responsible for the friend that he's bringing. And that's kind of uh, some form of screening in a way. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And I mean, yeah. how did you, let's say, pick the people that were actually drinking like was it something that you guys put together like almost like curated in, in a way uh, so we uh, had few connections to those people that are already drinking and we wanted to interview them and we asked them their permission and it's called like a rolling uh so it's a rolling procedure so each one sent us to the next person okay uh, that we interviewed and we try to make it balanced israelis and palestinian and gender balanced and kind of have people from different backgrounds uh, yeah. Were you also like kind of joining them in in the uh, in the ceremony, or were you just kind of observing what what was happening? Yeah, I did some participatory observations, so means to be part of the ceremony. But most of the data for this study is uh, from interviews. So interviews conductor conducted after the ceremonies. So you talk to people right after, like straight after the. Not necessarily right after can be months after more. Okay. Of course, I read the study and I mean, the, the couple of quotes from the answers you put in there. Mm, basically, I mean, you could say some of them are saying that they didn't feel at all any kind of specific religion anymore that they would belong to, like neither Christian nor Jewish nor Arab. So um, what I find interesting about this is in the beginning of the whole psychedelic movement, the podcast like last year, the new psychedelic movement, um, the, a lot of people were actually um, responding very interesting to Sam Harris, to this idea that he says, um, well, I mean, I would like to have a spirituality without religion. So like this neutral spirituality that is not, you know, kind of related to a big religion that you might grow up with. And um, but I mean, we had a couple of conversations also with uh, Zach Kamenetz and um, who you might know the, I mean, the psychedelic rabbi, you could say. And I also talked to him about this, that then often in psychedelic experiences, even if people would like to have a neutral spirituality, they come back to their religious setup without even wanting to have it. Can you guys talk about this, like how this worked in, in the study or what your experience was there? Scene and the investigation that we've did when we interviewed people who've gone and drunk, we've seen how such identities, practices, cultures that we've grown up with, even if we come to reject them, do manifest. At some point, if we reject them, do manifest eventually yeah. some experiences with psychedelics and, and um It's not necessarily that people uh, said that we are back to religion, but they found an element that was a connector for them on the relational level with the collective of the group or with the land itself or to the topic of the conflict. So you see mirrors in a sense that people did get from 
those spaces that also relate to that culture of faith that they come with. Because again, here we're not talking about people who jump to the space intentionally looking as Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Oh, let's look at the conflict. They were going for personal growth, most of them, and that's where those revelations happen, where the connection to the land, the connection to a certain element of faith, let's say, that connects to what's happening in the room, emerges. Um, not necessarily everyone was able to make sense from it, but again, you can hear it in the interviews that people did have those encounters. Some brought them to peace with those elements that they were rejecting in their past, let's say, of faith identities. Uh, and for some, it just continued to be just as an encounter that opened their eyes to certain things that they weren't noticing. Okay, interesting. Leo, do you want to add something? Yeah, so definitely we had people, you know, reporting these experiences of oneness beyond identities, kind of the classic mystical union experience in a group. But then many people report uh, actually connection to their culture, connection to the other culture and religion and stuff like this. So the ceremonies we observe were participatory, which means that usually the ceremony uh, maybe is like in the first half of the ceremony, the facilitators are leading it. But then in the second half, uh, the the participants themselves can bring their own prayers or their own music. So there's usually some interaction, musical interaction or religious interaction in the groups. Uh, so one of the groups we observed, we, we studied, were very much into this kind of uh, exchange of religion. So they do like the a rabbi who's like a famous rabbi in Israel, who's like an expert in Kabbalah, reads from the Kabbalah, and then the Muslim guy reads from the Quran, and they do kind of a back-to-back in the ceremony uh, exchange. So moments like this happen, and also in people's experiences, you know, sometimes people can experience visions which relates to their uh, their own religion. It's about Jerusalem, it's about Jesus sometimes, you know, so it's not completely this uh, religious-free uh, experience. Yeah. Okay. If you think of the study as like, as an experiment where these two kind of positions could meet again on a different level, let's say, what was your, your hope for the study that would, would come out? Or what was your wish? I mean, one could also say, I hope this is the outcome and I hope we make progress in this field. Yeah. The hope was to learn from these observations about how to do it in the future. So we just looked at people's experiences and the relational processes, see the potential and see how the potential can be in the future. Um, but there was like one crucial limitation that for us, what we hope for the future is to uh, solve this limitation. So the limitation is uh, that a lot of what we observed was like very hardcore apolitical. So people would say, we come, we connect as humans, we're human to human, uh, but let's put politics aside. Within peace research, a lot of times, there's like a irony in harmony. If you create a harmony in a small group context, but in order to do so, you kind of bypass political reality. In a way, it's just like a type of spiritual bypassing. It can happen. Then it's just an illusion of equality that prevents real-life change because uh, you actually don't really talk about the problems outside of this uh, small group context. Uh, so the groups that we observed were very much about harmony and oneness and connection, uh, but they were very apolitical. 
uh, and uh, you know sometimes uh, kind of in opposition to activism and stuff like this. Uh, so what we do hope in the future to see, uh, or maybe create in the future, is groups which are learning how to do this kind of interaction of spirituality and politics. Uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is very much about Israelis occupying Palestinians. There is asymmetry there. Uh, that needs to be discussed. There's uh, inequality, there's injustice, real-life injustice that needs to be discussed and can be part of the psychedelic process, we believe. It's not necessarily in opposition to it. Uh, so we kind of hope to see this interaction of spirituality and activism in a way that doesn't deny activism of its like uh, uh, revolutionary energy that comes with it or the kind of the, act, the need to act. Uh, or in spirituality, uh, that activism doesn't deny from it the human connection, the love, the unity that's felt between people. So to find the fusion between those two. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Antoine, do you, do you want to add something to this? Because you, you come from the, let's say, the activist background. What we've seen in civil society um, spaces where Israelis and Palestinians even came intentionally to talk about peace. So we see very similar transformative experiences that people have encountered in those spaces when they meet each other, when they meet the human and the other. And as Lior has mentioned, this pushes in a space of conflict that is so traumatizing and it's so heavy, it pushes people to try in a way to avoid politics because they don't know how to deal with what exists outside the room when you bring it into, um, let's say, uh, in contrast to this human connection that happens inside the room. And we know for sure that this kind of spaces are not going to disappear. Israelis and Palestinians will continue seeing each other, whether in joint spaces related to politics or even in just going to therapy. So the wish and the, the hope for is to be able also to develop uh, whatever tools that can support communities to maintain, to entrench more the transformation that happens in those joint spaces where people do encounter the other in that level. And we're not talking about a regular encounter here. We're talking about an encounter that really goes deeper into uh, showing the human, the humanity into the other, of the other. And again, we don't want to lose that transformation, but we don't want to create a bypass. We don't want to create uh, somehow of an illusion that being called humans together would solve our reality. And so to maybe diver, diving deeper into understanding what is missing there to maintain that transformation, to, to keep it resilient. As mentioned earlier by Leo, the preparation weren't also necessarily done with that intention. It's mostly related to the personal experiences. And so th there's a lot of beauty, basically, that happens in those spaces that we need to look at, learn from, and also integrate in the bigger picture outside. We're talking about relational mechanisms that are being challenged in those spaces, that are being uh, driven out of comfort zone and going into stretch zones. And if that could be done in that space, then we do need to learn what are those things that happen there and maybe to try and open those conversations on the nation level and see what, what, what did those people encounter and, and see and experience that made them see beyond those master narratives that have made us stuck for the last 27 years of a peace process attempt that has failed. Oh, okay. When I listen to you, I, I feel like 
Do you think there should be like a psychedelic consultant now for governments in terms of peacemaking <laughs> efforts? <laughs> I mean, it sounds now like ho, 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 but it's actually, it seems like a really good idea because, um, and for example, I feel like the whole Holocaust thing here in Germany, I mean, there are these monuments, there are these days where you remember the Holocaust, but like, I mean, we talked briefly in the beginning about this. It never really changes anything, I feel. Like the underlying trauma, which we now understand, start to understand with, because of people like Rachel Yehuda and, and you guys, like, I mean, I feel like when I heard about this the first time, I feel like the whole kind of um, remembering culture who doesn't exist anyway doesn't really do anything for the real transformation in this thing. So do you think that in the future, like, or in the near future, <laughs> there might be something like a... Um, like an advisory board for politicians that has experience or like create something like you guys do? Do you think that would make sense? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the are an amazing tool that can help communities out. And also, we should not rely on them to make peace. We should learn from the process. Yeah. The space, the window of opportunity, the window of dream, psychedelics open up for individuals. Is that vessel, is that tool? Is that mechanism where people are being able to see again beyond the master narrative and, and be able to engage in a process that results in, when we say peace, it's a healthy human relation, basically. And we can That's great. aspire for it on the collective level. And so, yes, do governments need to learn from what happened in those spaces? That's also part of what our intention is. If we can bring something from... Uh, what happens there to be shared with the civil society level that could be shared that can reflect on, let's say, policies of how do we relate to each other, then yes, there is a lot to learn from there and we can adapt into day-to-day -day life. Yeah. We talked about this earlier that, of course, people could, let's say, read your study or read about your study and then create a headline like, oh, this is the solution to the the problems in the Middle East. And then um, that's kind of a very short, like over short version of this, what, what you guys doing. So, and I really would like to talk to you about this, let's say, um, concern that you mentioned that this should would be like a too much of a restricted observation of what you guys are doing. So I'd be happy if you talk about your concerns, what we what we talked about, how the study could be like perceived as something that might be too easy to put into reality or the, the outcome, like, oh, yeah, okay, it works, let's do it, kind of. This is part of uh, reality. We know that psychedelics are not for everyone. So I don't expect the whole nations on, in this land, we're talking about 12 million to 13 million people almost by now that are living in the land to go into psychedelics. Uh, that would be very wishful thinking, And not necessarily the healthiest uh, approach, but we do know by now that, again, those spaces create processes that we can learn from. So my part, I don't want to create the illusion that, uh, yeah, an experience on itself can create peace between our nations. We are people who are coming with heavy load. We're talking about 70 plus years of an ongoing conflict, and and. It's not going to be fixed by just drinking ayahuasca. This needs to be more of a reconciliation process that happens on the larger scale. And that is where the learning happens, the reconciliation that does happen in the process of ayahuasca that happens with one or with the other. That's where I believe that 
that's where we need to learn more and bring those teachings actually from the medicine out. So is it going to be sufficient to give everyone psychedelics to have peace? I highly doubt. I don't want to create that illusion. We've seen it in 1994, 1995, when they said a peace treaty, a treaty, it's not even a peace treaty, the Oslo agreement which was a phaser agreement. They said a treaty will bring peace. Unfortunately, 27 years down the road, it did not bring peace. It made us into actually a worse position. And so the lessons learned uh, teach us that we should have a process that goes into the conciliation of the deepest wounds, as we've also learned with, with, with psychedelics and other experiences that would allow maybe for a huger, uh, larger scale civil society reconciliation. So just to depend on psychedelics would be creating an illusion, definitely. Yeah, I agree. I think our study sometimes, if it's like just titled, can psychedelics bring peace, you know, or like what we're trying to do is be part of a peace initiative, peace movements. There are many projects working in many directions and many good people around uh, doing different things. And this is our contribution to it. We don't see it as the only solution. We see it as part of maybe a solution, a part of in a developing approach uh, to the conflict that we're uh, doing. Uh, but it's not the solution. It's yeah. a part of hopefully some solution. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, the study is executed, you could say, like in the context of Imperial College, Robin was involved, Kurt Harris, Natalie Ginsberg from MAPS. So, I mean, how was it perceived in the, let's say, in the science community? Because it is kind of a very unusual, if you look at other studies, like, I mean, once a week, there's a study that is, again, like based on, I don't know, like antidepressants, anorexia, addiction. But these kind of topics are very rare. So how's the perception in, in the, let's say, current science community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some like it, some don't. You know, the medicalization of psychedelics was chosen as a strategy of mainstreaming psychedelics, which means psychedelics are not just a tool for therapy. Uh, they are more than that. There are a culture behind it. There's a lot of things behind it. And the uh, focus on therapy is a strategy to bring psychedelics into the mainstream. The risk of that is that focus becomes the, the main thing, becomes the only thing, you know? So what we see now in the medicalization and mainstreaming of psychedelics is that the discourse and the narrative has become so much narrowed on personal healing and personal mental health uh, that it forgets the bigger picture of things, you know? So what we try to do in our studies also to bring that twist, you know, it's not just therapy. It's also therapy. It's also healing. It's also healing individuals. It's also healing relations. It can also bring other things. It's a cultural tool as well. Uh, so people like that because they understand that they expand it. But some people within the scientific community would rather not to have politics around. You know, they want the straight kind of clinical uh, narrative that won't make them worry too much, you know? Yeah. So I think there is, it's divide, dividing, I think, opinions. Yeah. But I mean, there must be also like other people who think this is like a serious offer to, to make the world a better place, what you guys are doing. So for sure. Yeah. There must be also people coming in and really kind of wanting to support you with this. Right. I mean, in a way that you might not yeah, have yeah. expected before. Yeah, for sure. So Christian, you spoke about Christian Angermeyer before, so he'll, you know, supports our future projects and MAPS and Moshetov Krebs supported this, uh, this project that we're talking about right now. Uh, so 
And more people want to be part of this. Yes, definitely. Okay. On the study that you can read online, and we will post the link, of course, um, the quotes that you that you have from the people who were in the study, I mean, they seem like really super emotional, like what they experienced. So what was the thing that was the most touching for you personally that people said? There are a few things, but I think for me, when you do qualitative research, you're always expecting a surprise. You try to bring about above stories as a researcher. You don't want to impose a theory from the beginning. So what was surprising me also in the emotional level, and I cried in many interviews. I was like crying in many interviews from hearing the stories. But there was uh, stories of trauma uh, that also were uh, igniting hope in people and kind of making people uh, change makers. And when they tell those stories, there's something like it's an event. It's an important event in their life, like having a vision of uh, tra of the collective trauma. So Palestinian having a vision of the Nakba or Israeli having vision of doing a house arrest and then experiencing it from the side of the family. But what I was excited from hearing those stories is actually what happens immediately after the vision. And they are becoming kind of a messenger or a person who wants to create change. And it kind of brings a lot of hope. And those visions have like almost like a message of liberation or emancipation. And in these moments, I usually like cried and I cried a lot. So it's like, but, but something really touched me there. The question of trauma is kind of keeps coming up in this project. Uh, so the healing of collective trauma. And I think I saw there another angle in which trauma is also like something you heal, but the healing of it is also a process of like uh, reparation of the future, you know, of trying to create change. So trauma can be hijacked, you know. So if you look at how Israeli state is dealing with the Holocaust trauma, it's kind of hijacked to enforce the Israeli uh, narrative and excuse the, the, the way Israelis are treating Palestinians. But it can also be a force of universal idea of emancipation when you connect to it deeply, uh, I, I think. Uh, but those few stories kind of, they really ignited that in me. I, I was really touched by them. So their connection to trauma was making them change makers and seeing themselves as important actors uh, for the emancipation of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Wow. Antoine, what about you? I mean, similarly, when, when, I, when we did the interviews, I did the portion of interviews with the Palestinians. So when we're talking about Palestinians, we're talking about Palestinians who live in 1948 and the West Bank here. And you, when you come and meet the communities right now, you can sense, feel uh, how the identities have been uh, not only segmented, but have shifted over the years in a way, where even the role of what does it mean to be a Palestinian who resides in the state of Israel and a citizen of the state of Israel, what does that mean for Palestinians of 48? And once you hear the stories and you see how they're actually reconnecting to the inherited collective story that connects them to the general Palestinians, what Lior pointed out towards is that really finding that space of what the ground that they're standing on right now means in their life. <laughs> What's their responsibility? What's their connection to this collective? And how can they become, in a way, some of them did mention about being the middle person, in a way, between their collective Palestinian brotherhoods and sisters and the Israeli community that they reside within. So you see, like, that encounter and that owning up of that history, that it's painful, that it's usually 
the last thing we as Palestinians would uh, even identify as part of our identity. Although we speak about it 24 hours, the pain that we've experienced since 48, but we don't necessarily see that it is part of our identity. And the subconscious it is, but it's not necessarily in our conscious. And so people encountering that and it becoming part of their conscious and owning their own inherited pain or personal pain in it. And, and that comes out in a way where they say, you know, this is where I found my place to what I need to do in this land. This is where my, I found my connection to this land. And that's the message that I need to carry on. In the interviews that I've done, it has been mostly been about this middle ground in a way. Mm -hmm. You talked about this quickly in the beginning. Um, do you think that the pain that people might need to experience around their country, I mean, Germany, for example, with the Holocaust, is actually accessible only by psychedelics in a certain way? Because, I mean, of course, like, there are these days around the Holocaust on 27th of January, Auschwitz was liberated, and then it's in the news. And then the next day, it's like, well, yeah, it was yesterday. And there are all these museums here. I mean, I'm in Berlin here, like the city is full of, I mean, you can't walk like 20 meters without running into a place or um, like a building that's related to the Holocaust. I mean, it, it took me really a long time to realize that, actually. And I started to think about it when I came back from America. So and I feel always that people who, like German people I know, who have engaged in a psychedelic experience, a lot of them I talk to, they have met their past, <laughs> including myself. So, but would it make it easier to engage in that kind of necessary pain or experience around your country? Or is it just like a very hard <laughs> thing to, to ask everybody to do? <laughs> it's the only tool? No, it's not the only tool. We know that for a fact, if we look at the Jewish-German relations, just right after the Holocaust, there was the recognition, the reconciliation process, reparations, and so on. In a way, that's not an example that we can compare to the situation here because those elements that I've just mentioned are yet missing in the process. Okay. To say that we only need psychedelics to go there, that would be wrong, to be honest. I've sat with Palestinians and Israelis who didn't try psychedelics, who are deeply entrenched in those stories and are active in those stories. Uh, again, uh, psychedelics might help us into getting beyond something that is not necessarily uh, not necessarily a stumbling point for everyone, but for some, when you have a strong master narrative where you cannot see yourself beyond one identity, especially in, when you're talking about conflict zone, a militarized conflict zone, where fear is deeply entrenched on both sides, where the existence Uh, is so much threatened for both sides. The experience of people here is life existence threat, basically. And so is psychedelics the only way? No. Can it help us learn deeply about the importance of those conversations? Yes. The more you encounter those testimonies, the more this is a flag that is reminding us on the importance of doing a deeper reconciliation process. Palestinians and Israelis can sit in a room and talk about how hard their life is from the existing status quo of the last 27 years. They can talk about wishes for peace, but what we've and what we've learned in the last 27 years, that that's not enough, that we need to deal with the root issue of that depression that we're suffering from on a collective level. And 
that route is the history of where our relations started to worsen as Jews and as Palestinians. And so, yes, the psychedelics have helped people maybe to bypass whatever was not allowing them to face those narratives. That's where mostly I've sensed it, but it's not the only thing. Can it help? Again, it can help. Yeah. And how would you describe a collective depression? I mean, because that is kind of valid for so many countries with their own history. When you have Palestinian nation or the Israeli nation, and we'll take both separately and we can take them together. When you have Palestinians, for example, looking for recognition of pain that has happened since 48 and not getting it now, yeah, there's a depression there of pain where we're not necessarily at ease with being with our day-to-day -day pain as Palestinians. And that's, and you can see it in multiple layers in our life. But the depression that mostly concerned me was, why are we not able to achieve the possibility of peace? When both nations said in the 90s that peace is possible, our inability to achieve it indicates something there. And it wasn't just political. Was when you dig deeper, there was a trust issue. And that trust issue, in my experience, it's like an inhibition. That's what I know, and I'm not a, a psychotherapist, but that's what I know of what is uh, depression. It inhibits people to be in a certain uh, full being. And here we have an inhibition that doesn't allow us to trust the possibility of peace or to trust the other for peace. And again, that's where I see depression in this regard. And if that needs to be fixed, then maybe we should get on a collective process of talking about this inhibition. Hmm. Leo, can you add something to that? Sure, yeah. Collective depression. It's a good question. Maybe the world is in a collective depression as well, right? So it's like, this is my belief. You know, people say psychedelics are needed because there's an epidemic of depression. This is like a quote that's kind of repeating. What does it mean there's an epidemic of depression? Is there actually an epidemic of depression? Are so many people depressed? And I think so, you know, and, and part of my motivation also in this project is to bring more of like social observations into mental health. So alienation and disconnection can obviously be part of a collective depression. So, uh, you know, a culture that is uh, not connected to nature or human to human connection or maybe spiritual connection. So uh, the kind of alienation of the human brings collective depression to society and oppression. So with Israeli-Palestinian, this is obvious. Oppression brings depression. Uh, oppression brings uh, people who are, you know, uh, giving hope on actually being uh, changing and having ability to change their life, uh, having the agency to change their life. So I think, you know, on the global level, the question of agency, can we decide on the path that we're going through as humanity? You know, obviously all of humanity now is facing a crisis. Most people know that, but we are not knowing how to change it, you know? Uh, so we don't have the agency and the freedom to actually decide what is our future. We're kind of sucked into something which is quite oppressive, denying our freedom. And I think that leads to depression uh, So, uh, and other mental health issues. But uh, So there's a collective depression, I think, not just in the land of Israel and Palestine. And maybe psychedelics are not just tools of, you know, uh, treating uh, depression or treating anorexia, OCD, uh, treating alcoholism, treating all these things. There are tool of that can be used on a 
a tool of connection, reigniting connection between human and to human, human and nature, and a tool of liberation and slowly, slowly trying to see how we actually empower ourselves to move out of this situation that we're stuck in. Okay. If you look at the results now of this study, what would be, let's say, your follow-up study where you would like to test or like look into the next topic in the terms of that first results? Sure. Uh, we have a future project planned, but we cannot share too many details about it. What we can say is we try to bring more of a, like a political discourse into the practice. Uh, so the groups we observed were mainly for our personal, psycho-spiritual kind of uh, growth, uh, personal development. Uh, and we want to bring, create programs uh, in which the political, the personal, the social, uh, the spiritual, they're intertwined. Uh, and they, they managed to bring a political discourse in a healthy way to people. So this is kind of, but we don't want to share too many details about this. But what would be like a, a good support for you guys? I mean, a lot of people will hear this. And um, since we also connected with maps, so I mean, what, what would help you? I mean, it doesn't have to be money. It could be also something else like places or. There is a phase of the project that we're okay with. We don't need funding. We have the funding and we, we want to run a pilot of few things. And then after that, when we figure out a few things, I think then we will go again into like fundraising and uh, expanding. Perfect. That's um, a super good sum up for the whole project, because I think there will be many other studies to come from you guys. And um, thank you very much. It was really interesting. Thank you very much. See you soon. See ya. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.